Artificial intelligence, or AI, is revolutionizing the way we live, work, and interact with the world around us. From personalized recommendations to predictive maintenance, AI is making our lives easier, safer, and more efficient. In this episode, we explore the ways that AI is improving healthcare, reducing carbon emissions, enhancing education, and much more. Join us as we talk with two experts and discover how it's shaping a brighter future for all of us. I'm Amanda DeJong, and you're listening to Now at Ohio State. We talk with researchers, innovators, and bold thinkers who look at our world, see what the real challenges are, and create the solutions that people need now. So that introduction I just read, it was actually generated by a program called ChatGPT, a chatbot that has garnered a lot of attention lately. All I did was load up the chatbot and say, please write me a short podcast intro about how AI is changing the world in a positive way. A few seconds later, that's what it gave me. And while it's probably not going to win any awards, it's really not half bad. Now, I'm no expert in AI, but Ohio State's Dr. Ayanna Howard is. She's not only the dean of Ohio State's College of Engineering, but a world-renowned roboticist and accomplished entrepreneur. She's also one of 27 experts appointed to the National Artificial Intelligence Advisory Committee, which advises the president and the National AI Initiative Office. She sits down with our Jeff Grabmeyer to discuss ChatGBT, the pros and cons of the chatbot, and its potential impact on our world. So, Dr. Howard, everyone is talking these days about ChatGPT. You've been writing about early versions of ChatGPT for more than two years ago. I saw some articles that you wrote, and I mean, this was long before it was even released to the public. What did you see back then that made you realize that this was going to be such a big deal? So my research focuses on ethical AI. So we look at bias and how do we mitigate bias in artificial intelligence. Um, and so two years ago, we had a study where we looked at GPT-3. And what we found was that there was um, biases with respect to gender and race and ethnicity. So if you said something to it, it would give you very biased results. So I talked about it, like, oh, this is an issue because if we don't resolve it, people are going to take this as truth. Well, fast forward to the now. And now everyone has access to these tools, which used to just be for the research. And there's still misinformation if you use them. How did this racism and sexism make its way into this? Well, the fact is, is that humans are biased. I mean, we just are societal biases. And so if you are collecting data on our conversations across the spectrum, what you're gonna do is you're gonna have people's personal opinion. And so if I'm collecting news feeds and I'm collecting tweets and I'm collecting blog posts, all of this is gonna be reflective of our societal biases. AI is just basically saying, okay, here you humans are. What do you guys think? It's not thinking on its own. And therefore those biases are creeping into the systems. Are you still seeing the same problems uh, that you saw two years ago? I am, but they're different biases. So now if you try to poke it and, and try to get it to say something that might be um, homophobic, it will not do that directly. But we're seeing that it's warping some of the truth. So if you ask it information about anything from uh, voting or climate change or even things around uh, publications, 
it's going to make up stuff sometimes. We see it making up references, as an example. Um, and so that's a different type of bias and mistruth and misinformation. Uh, but it's done a lot better in terms of directly referring to things that are definitely off-label. So ChatGPT has developed very, very quickly. And uh, I know some people have raised alarms uh, about it recently, about what it may be capable of doing in the very near future. You know, some predictions that go well beyond just bias. I mean, I've, I've heard reports, some people think, you know, this could be the end of humanity. What do you make of, of the future of ChatGPT? The fact is, is people are going to use it because it is informative. It's basically a search engine that's at the next, 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 next level. You don't really even have to think about it. And so what we have to do and what both companies and society and governments have to do is think about how do you put some guardrails on the information? How do you ensure that when a journalist pings it and asks for, you know, who is the top XYZ person in robotics? It actually gives you the right information. And just so you know, if you say top US roboticist, I'm one of the top 10, just so you know. <laughs> but we need to be able to push it. And so we have guardrails. And so if we're using ChatGPT for things that impact our social liberties, whether it's health, whether it's education, we need to ensure that we aren't having policymakers use it as truth. So some of these worst case scenarios, how likely do you think those are? Is it really that scary to you? People, society, trust AI systems. And we've seen this in the past in my own research. And so the problem is, is that people will use it to abuse each other. Um, and that's really the worry that I have. So I might be someone who is interested in manipulating someone. Um, I might be a bad actor. I want to get your bank account so I can take away all your money. Well, I know how to now use ChatGPT to have a conversation so that you have no idea that I'm not who I am. Um, and so what I worry most is about the human in the loop using ChatGPT to basically manipulate other people, other humans. So, you know, one of the things that I do worry about uh, right now is that we are accelerating at a pace that most of us did not expect, even developers, even AI researchers. And that worries me a little bit because it means that we are developing at a speed beyond our capacity to manage it. And so what does that mean for us? It means that we need to ensure that everyone's at the table. We need to ensure that the sociologists, the developers, the coders, government regulators, that we are all at the table trying to solve this. It can't just be solved by the developers. It can't be just solved by the ethicists. It has to be solved by everyone. Um, and so that's really a, a call to arms and action to get everyone at the table to really think about this because it's out the bag. Um, and so now it's really about how do we manage the potential negatives, but ensure that we achieve and optimize the positive nature of these tools. What kind of guardrails can we put in place? Do we know that yet? The kind of guardrails we need to do is we need to ensure that whenever we have a chat GPT or GPT-5, I think, is, is the, the next one coming out, that we have the companies, the developers, actually test these systems across a wide plethora of demographics, international contacts, everything that you can think of that could go wrong 
they need to be able to say, okay, here we validated in the healthcare domain. Here we validated against civil liberties. Here we validated against mistruths. And, you know, it's 50% accurate or 60% accurate. Um, we need to know exactly what the bugs are as consumers. I think that enforcement policy should be applied, but we don't have that. And right now it's kind of like, oh, can we pull it back? Can we actually ban things once it's already out there? So we're catching up, unfortunately, at this point. What most excites you, though, about this? What, what's the, the, the best case scenarios about how chat GPT might be used in the future? Well, so what excites me the most is that it does provide much more information that otherwise was hidden from individuals. And that kind of power that you can provide to not just students, but individuals that are out there is amazing. You can have a teacher in the K through 12 system say, give me a lesson plan. I want to teach something about American history. Give me a lesson plan for it. Ba -ba -ba, there it is. That power basically provides the entire knowledge base of the world at the hands of every single person on this earth. That's the amazing thing about it. Is there ways that ChatGPT can help researchers at Ohio State and elsewhere do better work? Yes. So what I think it's great for would be if I'm interested in interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary work. So I'm a roboticist. I work in the healthcare space. Maybe I want to work on areas such as older adults with dementia. So I work with children with special needs. I want to go into older adults. I don't know much about that domain. So I can use ChatGPT. It's like, what are the best references around robotics for older adults? Blah, 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 blah. Anyone here at Ohio State? Blah, blah, blah. Okay, now I now can figure out, I can go out, I can send them an email and start a collaboration. How else might this relate to robotics? How can we use ChatGPT to improve robotics? Oh, it's a perfect synergy between robotics and something language models, ChatGPT equivalent. Um, so one of the things about robotics is that robotics are here to interact with people. The best form of interaction that we have through communication modalities is through language. And so by having robots basically have the language model, they can communicate with their human counterparts in a much more seamless way, which allows them to interact inside the classroom environment, the hospital environment, even in the, the workforce. Thank you so much. I very much appreciate talking about this. Thank you. So clearly, some aspects of AI still have some learning to do. But as of now, general access to a lot of these AI programs and bots is actually pretty limited. If we were to increase access and allow more people to utilize AI, could we then shape it and mold it to become better, more efficient, even more understanding? On the same note, if people had more access, would it also improve the world for humans? Our Ross Bischoff sits down with DK Panda, an AI expert, professor, and computer science researcher at Ohio State. DK is also spearheading one of two National Science Foundation Institutes at Ohio State that are expanding what we know about AI. So when it comes to talking about democratizing AI, DK really is the guy to chat with. Artificial intelligence has been a big deal lately. It's been big in the mainstream. 
So I guess first to frame this up, can you just tell us what your definition of artificial intelligence is? Okay. So the idea is that can a machine mimic what we human beings do? When a kid is born, the kid doesn't know anything. I mean, it has a brain, but the brain has not developed. And over the years, we go through a lot of learning, lifetime experiences, and that's how we mature as human beings. So you can think of very similar things when you want a computer to behave like a brain, you, you need to teach the computer. And this is where the fields of machine learning, deep learning, big data, all these things are coming. Just like a human being interact with the surroundings, environments, and try to learn from it. So we need to do exactly similar kind of things for the computers. And if we can be successful, then that will be the artificial intelligence we are talking about. So when we're talking about the institute that you are directing, um, the thing that I, I think I hear you say more than, more than anything is democratizing AI. Yes. What does that mean? These days, AI is still limited to a lot of high-end users, researchers uh, um, uh, or practitioners, engineers, uh, software developers. The question is, can we take it to the masses? can think of like a, a farmer in a field. Can the farmer utilize AI to enhance his or her crops, uh, yield of the crops, um, make it more economical, make it more highly productive? So there is a big gap from research to development to practice to really take it to the common people. And that's what I mean by democratizing AI. All these high-level concepts we can design and develop, but make it so simplified so that the end users, the normal users, without any background in AI, can still use and be benefited from these technologies. Can you kind of talk about, to, to somebody like myself who has never really tapped into this, what would it, would it be an app on my phone? Would I have to yes. go somewhere? Yeah. What would it look like? So that, that's what I think you are hitting it right. We These days, especially with the iPhones, iPads, and all, people have been very much used to apps. So that's what we want to do. Um, so whatever like uh, we do all our uh, uh, sophisticated algorithms, machine learning or deep learning, data management, everything happens in the behind the scene. But as an end user, you just interact with the app. For example, the farmer uh, example I indicated earlier uh, should just ask the question in the morning saying, okay, does my field has any diseases? What should I spray? That's all. Behind the scene, um, they are made from drone services, which will go and fly on the, on the farm using machine learning model. It can identify which part of the field um, has uh, what kind of diseases. It will automatically recommend, uh, saying, yeah, for these kind of diseases, you need to spray pesticide one or pesticide two. Those instructions can automatically be given to the sprayers or the tractors, and they will go and spray. <laughs> okay, so that is the kind of the vision what we are thinking of. It's incredible. And I think it's interesting that you brought up, we have used it for entertainment purposes, but this is a whole different level. This is very powerful. Yes. And I've heard you use the term plug and play AI. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that a little bit? Yes, yes. Uh, in the farmer's case, it should be able to exactly retrieve the model, might be the soybean field. Of course, the farmer has to tell, saying this is soybean or this is uh, uh, wheat or corn. And then appropriately, it will be able to go and fetch the proper models, 
um, to, to find out what kind of diseases are there for the soybean. Uh, it will automatically detect what is happening and also find out what kind of pesticides are being used or have been used and what will be the best. So it will bring all these things together and, and give a very simple recommendation form with much higher accuracy. That's what also we are waiting for. Like an entertainment, I mean, if in the in the early days of Siri, you might have seen, I mean, you, you ask the Siri to play a song, might be the Siri didn't hear you properly. It'll start playing some other song. It's okay, entertainment is okay, but, but here we need to be really more accurate. Uh, we don't want to spray the wrong pesticides and all. So, uh, so this is where we are developing very sophisticated machine learning algorithms, the detections uh, to make everything work in a highly reliable manner. So when you envision what democratization of AI looks like, what comes to mind? Um, nowadays, uh, even a five years old, six year old, knows how to operate an iPhone, right? We don't recommend it as parents, we don't uh, allow, but they are all excited. I mean, these are like the, all the, at least the teenagers, you know, they, they know the iPhone. They are, in fact, much more experienced than us. So I am thinking a similar kind of things. When people will, common man, like a shopkeeper or, or farmer, they will be able to actually operate on these, these apps and then see the real benefits. Ross, I don't know whether you know Icicle. Recently, we got a supplemental grant between U.S. and India as a part of the Icicle to really take this digital agriculture, what we are talking here in U.S., to India. The concepts might be the same, but the crops are very different. Uh, in India, they might be um, growing rice. Here we are having wheat or soybean. There might be onion or um, uh, potato. So how do you move these models around? Okay. So, so, so like this, we are able to really take technologies not only developed in the U.S. for our uses, but we are also trying to look at the other countries. And and I feel this is where if we can really help these farmers in the in the other countries or in the context of medicine, like where we can really help the rural communities. Uh, think of like pathologists. We have Dr. Anil Parwani here at OSU. Rural counties cannot afford Dr. Parwani. Can the local doctor there take a sample and uh, pass it through iPhone app, and Dr. Parwani takes a look at here and recommends. Uh, can we design a metaverse for these kind of pathologies? They can actually work together all over the world. So this is where I think if we can reach those kind of stages, um, we'll, we'll see that we have reached up to a certain extent of democratization. So what are sort of the short-term goals? Of course, the research, within the research, we have like these three use-inspired science cases. I indicated like a digital agriculture. We have an animal ecology, like how the animals move around, what impact it has on the uh, conservation, um, the population, and also the climate change, those kind of things. And the third one is the smart uh, uh, food sets, the distribution, transportation kind of things. But interestingly, what you'll see in any of these applications, a lot of data is coming. That is the main thing. A lot of data is coming, and those are coming from sensors from drones, from uh, uh, different devices. And computation is happening at different stages. Either it is happening at the, at the edge, or it is as a near edge, or it is as a server, a cloud. So that is the infrastructure we are trying to build. And once you build it, you will see exact similar situations hold good for a lot of other environments. One of the things that I, I think is really important, and the NSF talks about this a lot with these institutions, is 
training the next generation of AI researchers and the next generation of our workforce. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, yes, you hit it right. So this is actually uh, one of the major pillars also besides the research and development. Um, how do we train uh, workforce development? Um, because uh, just like any, any new field when it comes, there are not a lot of trained people, okay? But then over the years, unless you train those people, you'll not be able to sustain the, 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 the growth in that field. So in our Icicle Institute, we have almost now 50 to 60 students working across 14 different organizations. And there are some postdocs, research scientists and all. So our objective is that as a part of this thing, as they are working on, not only they are working on their own pieces, they're also getting exposed to this entire system. So they're getting a very broader look. And through that, they will be actually the next generation of researchers or software engineers or professionals. And they will be able to, again, train the next generation, okay? So, so not only train, they should be able to assemble systems, they should be able to understand what is going on. And especially with AI, there is always a lot of big focus on explainability. I talked about graduate students, we have undergraduate students, and we are also gradually trying to uh, go into the K-12 also. Uh, we, we want to get engaged with high school students uh, because those will be the students in another 10 years will be the professionals. Isn't it kind of fascinating to think of AI as being like a child? It's growing and learning, but we're all its teachers, its parents, so to speak. Could the future of machine learning and AI be a scary place? Sure, on one hand it could be. But the best part is that we have the power to mold that future and ensure that we mold it in a vibrant and positive way. It's kind of funny. After I asked ChatGPT to generate that short bit of the introduction, I actually typed back, thank you. Don't ask me why. Habit, I guess. Oddly, it took more time for the chatbot to respond back with, you're welcome, than it did to generate our intro to this show. Kind of makes you think. Now at Ohio State is produced by the Ohio State University's Office of Marketing and Communications. For more information, visit us at go.osu.edu now. I'm your host, Amanda DeJong. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.